What I'd like to speak about this evening is really what we're doing here, what it is that we're engaged in as a as a group, as a community for these days and that today and so far we've been here for a bit over 24 hours. What are we doing here, we might ask? And one way we could understand and describe that is to say we are cultivating what could be translated from the Buddha's own words as goodness, presence and wisdom. And these, which I'll say a little more about goodness, presence, wisdom, these are really the foundations of happiness, the foundations of peace for us all. Happiness is something that I think we're pretty universally interested in. Now, we might use different words for what that word points to. Some of us might find that kind of a word that we don't relate to at all. It might seem a bit sort of sickly or sort of um, overly sweet happiness. I'm not interested in being happy. Um, I just want, you know, but we, we mostly have a sense of what it is we're drawn to in life. And uh, I think I sort of suggested last night we might use words like peace or truth or freedom or just well-being, ease, okayness, to express what it is that that sense of happiness points to for us. And as human beings, our interest in this, our sense of being drawn to a a deeper or greater sense or state or experience or understanding of well-being, happiness, peace, truth, freedom, love, whatever it might be, that sense of a draw towards that is universal. And yet, What's also clear to us is that the question arises in life of how does this come about? How does it come to be that happiness can be found? Because it's clearly not inevitable that just because we're here and just because we'd all really like, whatever the word we might use for it, we'd all actually really like to be happy and not to be unhappy. I don't know many people who would like to be unhappy unless they think that being unhappy would actually make them happy which comes in the end to the same thing. And yet it's not inevitable that it comes to be so. Now, it's important to understand that this isn't necessarily our fault to not blame ourselves for this condition, as we can easily do, particularly when we're very young. There's a degree of understanding required. And so far as we haven't been taught, haven't learnt about that, It's inevitable that, in fact, we'll find often enough in our life we're not experiencing what we wish for in terms of happiness, in terms of peace, in terms of a capacity to deeply connect with and abide in a sense of truth, of love, of freedom, of well-being. So there's this process going on in which we we seek happiness, we could say, or for the end of suffering, if we put it that other way. We seek for the end of those things that lead us to feel unhappy. And the Buddha is well known he's, he's, uh, for, for many things that he said. One that he said on frequent occasions was, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And it's a, a very beautiful statement. 
And a friend of mine some years ago in America observed, well, that's interesting, but isn't that two things? And he, he, he was reflecting, he surmised, he thought, well, maybe the Buddha started off just teaching one thing. He started off saying, maybe he just, I, I teach suffering, just one thing. And of course, if he did that, he probably found not so many people came along to hear what he was talking about. Because we all know plenty about suffering. We could all be teachers of this. What we're interested in is not just suffering, but the end of suffering. Not just our longing for happiness, but how does the fulfillment of that come about? And so this exploration, this engagement is engaged with this. How it comes to be that suffering arises or that unhappiness is experienced and how it comes to be that suffering ends, that happiness is discovered, that peace, that freedom and well-being can be realised. And so this, this practice, this path is really a path of happiness. When I was asked, in my, um, when I first got involved with meditation, uh, and I was asked by friends what I was doing, because back then it was still a pretty weird thing to be doing, and often it was a bit of a conversation stopper. You know, you mentioned meditation, and, you know, embarrassed silence, um, coughing, sort of looking for a cup of tea or something else ensued. Um, it's different now, which is wonderful. But uh, often what I would say to try and summarise what it was about, I'd say, it's actually happiness training. This practice for me is happiness training. I'll come back to what that, what that means. But this wish we have to be, happy, to be happy, this aspiration, is born out of a caring for ourselves, for life, a natural, inherent and appropriate well-wishing towards our own existence. We care. We care deeply for the condition of our life. We care deeply for the condition of our heart and our mind and our body. We really do. If you notice what it is that we're thinking about, that you're thinking about when you're in those occasional moments when you have a thought, it's mostly about how we can preserve or protect or enhance our well-being in one form or another, or the well-being of others that we care for. Because we care so, so much. And yet this condition, the other thing we notice in those occasional moments when a thought might by chance arise, of course I trust you know I'm being uh, slightly ironic and uh, not suggesting that's necessarily going to be most people's actual experience. I have to be careful there in case someone's thinking, oh, you mean most people just have one now and then? (laughs) Um, I just want to be quite clear with that. It's not usually the case. But what we notice is this experience of our heart and our mind is quite conflicted, contracted in sort of struggle and reaction and caught in patterns of busyness or, or resistance or wanting or fear. So much of that is what we notice when we come into the situation, when we place ourselves here and start to see what's going on. When I was uh, first exploring this meditative path, I was traveling in Asia and in India. I found a book by a uh, a Buddhist monk who originally German but was ordained in the um, Sri Lankan tradition. His name was Nyanaponika Terra, which means elder. And uh, his book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, something of a classic, one of the early texts that's actually really accessible. It was written in the 60s. 
Um, and there was a line in it that I came across, having found it in a sort of a dusty little bookshop in New Delhi, I think it was. Um, and I was reading it, and there was this line that he, he talked about. He said, this heart-mind is bound all over. And I, and I kind of feel that sense of, this heart-mind is bound, like caught, entangled, tied up, bound all over, he wrote. And yet it can know freedom, here and now. So for me, there's something very powerful and beautiful, that sense of the acknowledgement, yeah, this, this mind, this heart, our experience, what we encounter, feels at times so bound, so tight, so constrained or limited. And yet then there's this, it's not just that, but there's this potentiality being pointed to, that this mind that is bound all over can know freedom, here and now. And really, to come to understand that potential, that possibility, and not just understand it as a theory, but to know it as an experience, to realize this is something that is possible for each of us. That's really, in my mind, what we're doing here, as opposed to doing meditation or yoga or being silent or being spiritual, all of which we are also doing in a sense. So, in the teachings that the Buddha gave, there are three, we could say three, we could say four, primary areas of attention, depending how it's broken down. And I'm translating them to say goodness, presence, wisdom. Goodness comprises what the Buddha called dana and sila, a relationship of life based in generosity and in non-harming, a sense of caring for well-being of others. Presence is what the Buddha referred to as samadhi, the capacity to really be here, to be wholehearted, undivided, in a way that allows us to see deeply and to experience. And this is really the practice of meditation. And wisdom is the third area of attention, of development, that is a foundation for happiness. And the Buddha used the word panya. And this translates as understanding or, or wisdom. And so I'd like to reflect on these areas. The Buddha sometimes described the path he was offering because the Buddha, to my mind, what was one of the remarkable elements of what this human being offered to his contemporaries and through them and many followers since to us, what he offered was actually a way to practically engage with our life that transformed it. Rather than a set of ideas of how we should think about it or what we should believe in or even just what you're supposed to do, it was much more a way of this is how you engage. This is how you engage with life. And so the first of these qualities, goodness, as I'm translating it, or framing it, the, the Buddha spoke again and again of the power of generosity, of what it's like to connect with our natural capacity for sharing, forgiving, receiving, and how it is that that affects us and affects others. And he spoke, and this was often the first thing he would teach about. He wouldn't come in and say, okay, to a bunch of people he'd never met before, I'm going to teach you how to meditate. That's not what he started with. Or I'm going to teach you about some esoteric spiritual truths that I've discovered. No. He said, you know, 
Have you noticed what it's like when someone gives you something? Have you noticed what it's like when you share something of yours with someone else? Have you noticed how that feels kind of nice? How that it's actually uplifting and it creates a sense of connection between yourself and another? And he said, that's important and that's telling us something about what it is that we are. And it's something we can all relate to. We know what it's like to receive. And we know what it's like to have a sense of offering and sharing. And so the Buddha said, this is something to cultivate and development. As a, as a foundation for your life. And he said, also, even there might be times when you can't meditate, you can't keep the precepts, you can't do anything at all, it seems. He said, even in that condition, when all other things are lost, you can still find a way to make a small offering of something and stay connected in that way. So it's actually an important part of the path. In fact, a real foundation of it. And together with that, the practice of non-harming, of the precepts that we talked about yesterday evening, which are an expression of understanding that our actions have impact. They're potent, they're powerful. They impact on ourselves, they impact on others. And this condition of our heart-mind, and the, and the, and the, the language the, the Buddha's teachings were recorded in, there wasn't a word for heart and a word for mind. It's a particularly Western tendency to separate these two things. They are aspects of something that really is not separable. And ultimately it's actually not that separable from our body either as it happens. But that's another whole territory. Um, So the word heart-mind is the word I find most useful to express um, or to translate from from the direct teachings. And the condition of our heart-mind, our heart and mind, this capacity we have for being affected and being responsive or reactive, that was sensitive, and yet there's also a creative potential coming out of that sensitivity. It's what we're talking about, this heart-mind. That the condition of our heart-mind, which we're so deeply interested in, which is so much the focus and the centre of our engagement and our inner and outer activity, is dependent upon our actions. This is something the Buddha pointed out, saying, The intentions, particularly the intentions, the motivations, what it is that moves us to act, is what most profoundly conditions, colours, affects, and even actually we would say creates the conditions of well-being or happiness or their absence in our lives. And the Buddha invited us to look and see, is this true for ourselves? To look for ourselves. What happens when we act from a place of selfishness or greed? What's the experience when we act from a place of anger or hatred? What's it actually like when we're doing it? Actually, often it's really painful. And the outcomes are often tragic. This is the reality for us all. It leads to suffering for ourselves, suffering for others. And we look at this world so full of fear and anger and hatred, so driven by greed and selfishness and disregard for other people at times or other beings or environments at times. So much of that going on, it seems. And we see the effect, tragic effect in life. And so... The Buddha said, and the teachings suggest us to check this out and see what happens in our life. 
if we align ourselves with that non-harming. To notice how it's even been for yourselves just in one day of having lived under the precepts. To see, is it true in your own experience that this orientation supports your well-being and supports the well-being of those around you? It's fine to leave it as an open question if it's not apparent to you. Again, I'm really not trying to convince you of anything here. Really, just I'd rather much more that you take a look, see for yourself. And at the same time, the teachings and my own experience are pretty clear. True happiness comes from aligning one's actions with those motivations that are wholesome, those expressions of, of care, of generosity, of respect, and at times restraint with regard to enacting our, you know, our habitual reactivity. Now, what this starts to bring us into contact with is we see, okay, if what goes on in my actions, my words, and my very thoughts, which are regarded as actions of the mind, the thoughts that come up, the words that express them, the actions that make them even more substantial, all of that, if that's what really my well-being and happiness depends upon, is coloured by, is flavoured by, then I need to get more conscious. I need to be more awake. I need to know what's going on in this thinking, speaking, acting experience, moving, responding. Because otherwise, if most of what's going on is happening habitually, unconsciously, and without us even realising that it's taking place, we have very little opportunity to influence it or to transform it. So there's this there's this shift that we're asked to engage in towards emphasising, giving primacy to, giving central importance to the capacity we have to be conscious, to be awake, to know what's going on. Not just because it's a, a useful thing in and of itself, but because it, this capacity and its development is what allows us to make the real choices in our lives which is the choice about what it is that we express in our activity, what it is that we align ourselves with in our inner and outer engagement. And the Buddha said very clearly, again, and you can check this out, that when we act from, hap- from, from kindness, from generosity, from care, it leads to happiness and well-being for ourselves and others. And It's not such an esoteric wisdom, is it? We know this. But having said that, it's not so easy to follow through with the implication of it. It's not easy at all. We see how difficult it is to really be present, to really be connected, to really be here. And it's a learning process. We learn. Our life is a journey of learning. There is no other way for it to grow and develop. If we're present, if, and to the degree that we are more and more able to be conscious, awake, mindful, and actually see what's going on, and even today, within 
you know, several hours of being here in the groups, there are very clear reports of things that we're starting to notice, that you're noticing, that you're saying, oh, oh, that's what's going on. That actually, when there's nobody to talk to, I feel kind of like it's a bit difficult to set up or reinforce or maintain the sense of who I am. Because normally I do that by talking to people and seeing how they respond to me. I don't get to do that here. So we start to learn, oh, that's something that drives us. We start to see, and of course, many things. Many things. So this quality of being present is what enables us to begin or to deepen the journey of discovery. And yet, what tends to often make it really hard is that we so easily tend to give ourselves a hard time for the fact that it's not going as quickly, as smoothly, or as brilliantly as we had hoped or wished or been led to believe it would go. Hmm? You know, we're mostly really well trained at giving ourselves a hard time about the things that aren't quite good enough. And yet, we can't do it all at once. We can't, even just with the precepts, of course, there'll be many things we do where we're not fully in alignment with those suggestions. And yet, what's important is our intention. Just as there'll be many moments when we're not mindful or present, but what's important is our intention, and we connect with that, we come back, we begin again. It's the intentions that make the difference in the end. And so, giving ourselves permission to learn here means giving ourselves space to make mistakes without having to punish ourselves if we do. It's really hard to do what we're doing here if we're being really tight and trying to make sure I get it right first time, every time. I mean, if you did, you would be the first and only person to have done that. And yet somehow we imagine that everybody else is doing that. You know, we're sitting here, my mind's all over the place. Or my body is aching or sore or restless or sleepy. And we look around and imagine that everyone else is calm, peaceful, serene, deeply contemplating profound and mystical truths. <laughs> and of course, whenever anyone happens in a similar state of despair to look at us, they think much the same of ourselves. And yet that's not necessarily what's actually going on. So to, to really be kind to yourself with regard to what happens. To give yourself room to make mistakes here. In the practice of meditation, as I said, the cultivation of the ability, the capacity, the inherent and remarkable potentiality we all have of wakefulness, which it's been here with us all along through our whole lives. Though mostly we probably take it for granted until someone maybe says to us or we reflect on it, we think, oh, well, hey, my gosh, it's kind of curious, isn't it, that somehow I have some sense of knowing what is going on. Or Though we might also realize we have also sometimes a sense of not having a clue what's going on. But somehow even that, we know that that's going on. Huh. Interesting, isn't it? And this, this capacity and the development of this capacity to be present, to be awake, this is really the foundation of what I said already or referred to already as happiness training. Supporting this organ, we could say, of 
of sensitivity, of receptivity, of responsivity, of creativity, this heart-mind, to be able to stabilize, to walk, as it were, in a straight line. It requires a gentle but steady discipline to bring a sense of collectedness, to establish, to deepen a sense of stability, requires us many times, hundreds of times, thousands of times, to come back, to reconnect, to come back, to reconnect, to see where we might be resisting what's happening and invite ourselves to say, okay, maybe this isn't just what I wanted or hoped for, but maybe I could be here anyway. Yeah, my knee feels uncomfortable or I feel kind of drowsy and woozy. But maybe I can be here with that. And if I need to stretch to wake myself up, if I need to move my leg because it's actually just too painful right now, that's okay. But I'm going to include all of that in this process and experience of being conscious and awake. Rather than seeing it as somehow a failure or somehow outside of the meditation because it's not outside of it. It's not. We're being asked to notice what's happening. And if that's what's happening, we're being asked to notice that. And so it's a little bit like training a puppy. If every time we see, you know, if, if you want to um, train a puppy, and you need to train a puppy, if it's going to live in a human world and be happy and safe, it needs to learn things, like it needs to learn to follow or heal. I don't know if that's the, the word to use here, but, you know, follow, heal, come and stay beside its owner. And if you get a puppy and you put it down beside your heel and say to it, heel, and then you walk off, what do you think happens? If you've trained a puppy, you'll know. It wanders off. It goes here, it goes there. You have to go and get it. You bring it back. You say, heel. Now, you know, the puppy runs very quickly off to smell a flower, to decorate a water a tree or chase a butterfly. If every time it goes off, you say, bad dog, I told you to, I told you to heel, come back. If you do it again, I'm going to hit you. Pretty soon the puppy thinks, this guy's pretty angry. I don't think I'll hang around here. Well, this guy's not very friendly. I'm sure I can find someone kinder. And keeps disappearing. Whereas if you say every time, huh, that's where you've gone. Huh, that's what you're doing. Oh, you seem interested in this. Huh, come back here. Come back here. Come. Pretty well. soon the puppy says, yeah, this person's kind of friendly. I don't know what they want me to follow them for, but why not? I'll try it. Give it a go. And that's how it happens with our mind, too. It's not that different than a puppy in the end. And so we see there's this, it requires some wholehearted engagement, but it needs to be done with a kindly spirit, a caring spirit. Because this is the heart-mind that we care about. And so much of the suffering comes from when we're hard and harsh and demanding and judgmental towards ourselves. On top of all the difficult things we have to contend with in life as well. That latter, at least, is optional. Though again, initially, it may be so deeply ingrained and habitual that we just find ourselves, you know, giving the puppy, you know, a piece of our mind. Giving our own mind a piece of our mind. Kind of funny, huh? What it means is our mind gets fragmented. And that's painful. So here we're looking to find something more whole, unfragmented. And yet seeing it's not easy because the mind keeps getting pulled, drawn with, you know, at times alarming enthusiasm into the future. 
or the past. And we see this, how experiences trigger memories and associations. We hear a sound. We think, oh, that's a nice sound, that bird. Oh, if that bird would just keep singing, then I could really meditate well. And we think, oh, that reminds me of going for a walk with my teenage sweetheart on that beautiful sw- spring morning and the birds were singing. I remember how lovely that was. We're filled with joy and bliss. And, oh, this is great. Oh, yeah. And then we remember actually how that particular relationship ended up and suddenly, oh, my gosh. Oh, no. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe I said that. And we're filled with grief and remorse and the tragedy of our life. And, and we didn't notice that it was just a bird going, or whatever it did, because we got lost in a story, in an association, a connection. And it was just a sound. Oh, it's the rooks. And, and it's more, oh, no, please, oh, if only they'd be quiet, if only they'd be quiet, then I could really meditate. And you know, sometimes they're really quiet. And that's when we fall asleep. There's always something going on, isn't there? There's always something going on. And seeing the way we engage with our experience, the tendency to push away or grasp towards, to pursue one thing, to try and avoid another, get to know what that's like. Because actually on the inside it's really uncomfortable if we let ourselves feel it. If we let ourselves know the experience, rather than thinking, I shouldn't do that, I'm doing Buddhist meditation and we don't grasp or avoid, we just be equanimous or peaceful. That's what it looks like. But no, that's not what happens. We sit here and see how we grasp. We see how we try and avoid or resist experience. And that when we do so, it's painful. So it's useful to understand that that whole process gives us something. It's like just being here, simple as it is, inviting as it may sometimes appear, it is profoundly challenging to us at all levels of our habitual, unconscious, and familiar ways of life and living, and equally our, habitu- uh, our familiar, habitual, and unconscious beliefs about who and what we are. And one of the things that happens in this process is that when we're being present, it's like there isn't really so much to get hold of. Memories and stories about the future are a bit more juicy. So we get pulled into them because it gives us something and we're used to having something to get our teeth into, so to speak. And here, when there's not so much to get hold of because it's just one moment and then the next, it can be a little uncomfortable. It can be a little unsettling. And it's important to acknowledge that we may be in some way ambivalent about the process without even realising it. So I once heard this uh, story being described and it was sort of, I think it was being read or something like that. It was like, and the, the voice was coming, it was like, I don't want to go to school today. Why do I have to go to school? I don't want to go to school today. Johnny, comes the other voice, you have to go to school. No, I don't want to go to school. Sometimes the kids aren't nice to me. Johnny, you've got to, I don't want to go to school. Johnny, you're the teacher. You've got to go to school. And it's like, sometimes we have this, I don't want to be here. I don't want to have to feel this. I don't want to have this experience. But you're the teacher. I mean, this is your experience. This is your life. There isn't something else. You can't trade this one in for another. It's not possible. 
And so far as we live in the fantasy that it is, we don't get the one we wanted, nor do we get to have the one we've got. And we're lost in between the two. And that's deeply dissatisfying and painful and tragic, in fact. So, looking at what's going on, looking at our ambivalence, it's important to acknowledge it. It's okay, we all have it. Sometimes we think mm, it's a good idea. Sometimes we're quite sure. We know, I, don't, I think it's a stupid idea. I don't think I'll be bothered at all. We decide to take a holiday and think, you know, I've done enough of that meditation. I'm going to, you know, get a nice cup of tea and sit in a comfortable chair and happily think about other things. You know, a good dose of fantasy. Juicy. Although sometimes it's a bit like getting on a train, isn't it? The train looks good when it's coming past. We think, hmm, I think I'll take a ride. Yeah. And wow, the scenery's wonderful. And then we see us going around a corner and we think, oh no, it's around the corner. And we realise, oh my gosh, the, the tracks have been washed out and the, it's a train wreck. You know, it started off as attractive and then it ends up somewhere we didn't really want to be. Have you had that experience with your mind? And its capacity for creating ideas and drawing us into them and then dumping us into what we're afraid of or fear? So, some of the activity that goes on, the telling of stories of what I was or where I was or who I was and what I will be and who I will be and where I will be. These stories give us a sense of me somehow located in the middle between what I was and where I'm going to be. And yet, if we actually look right here, there's not so much we can get hold of. And that, again, that's kind of uncomfortable. It's kind of scary. And this... These pushes and pulls, it's a bit like trying to walk in a straight line in a strong wind. We keep getting blown this way and blown that way. And we have to really be attentive to keep our balance. That's what we're learning to do here. We're starting to recognize the inner winds, which in simple terms are often expressions of wanting this or not wanting that. But sometimes they're pretty strong. And we get blown and we get caught. We get carried away sometimes. And, oh! and then we... Realize, oh, I'm here, I'm here, we're always here. We feel like we've been carried away, but the truth is we never actually leave. We're always here, but we actually, or we simply stop remembering. We lose track of the fact that we are here and always here. And when our mind is at the mercy of our reactivity, it is so not what we wish for. It's so painful. And it's so apparently and obviously lacking in the peacefulness, the content and the well-being we, we yearn for? I mean, has anyone had the thought, I wish my mind would be quiet? I wish my mind, please, just for a few moments, would just be quiet? And of course, it's our mind making the noise, saying, please be quiet, I want it to be quiet. That's more of the noise, interestingly enough. And yet it's saying something to us. We can't just tell it to be quiet. There's an operation you can have that will do it, but it's not what you're after, I assure you. So be careful to not judge your practice on how busy or quiet your mind is. We're in a journey and process of learning here. And we have to trust what happens. So we learn to give attention to what's going on. We learn to see 
the movements of reactivity that arise within us that if we don't see, we end up following out. And we might have a sense of, you know, it might just be a thought that says, oh, this walking, it's not particularly exciting. A cup of tea would be nice. And before we know it, we're sitting in an armchair with a cup of tea. And often we didn't even notice the thought that said, oh, a cup of tea would be nice. What we noticed was that we just somehow went to the cup of tea and the sofa. And there we were. And we just, oh, oh my gosh. One person wrote after leaving um, a retreat on about the fourth day, sometime after lunch, he wrote back to um, my wife, who'd been teaching the retreat, I didn't notice where I was until I was in Plymouth. And he'd got all the way out, I'm leaving, I'm out of here, I'm gone. And he was in his car and he'd driven to Plymouth and he was heading for Cornwall. Before he realized, oh my gosh. Not just his mind went on a trip, but it took his body with him. Unconsciously, completely unconsciously. And it's kind of scary how much we can do unconsciously. Now, we can get in a car and go somewhere, and in our normal mode, that counts for normal human activity. No wonder we get into trouble. We didn't really know that was happening. So giving attention to the body, coming into the body, connecting with our body, helps us really ground, steady, and stabilize this initially frantic and fractured activity of mind. And so we, we're establishing this, this non-reactive and focused or gathered, collected attentiveness that we call mindfulness, that we call presence, that's, that's about just, I find my hands doing this, it's like allowing our experience to gather right here. It's not like we're trying to squeeze it and hold it tight and make it just like this, but it's more like just letting it gather Letting our life be gathered here in our heart, in our palms, our open palms. And so, as we become more able to be present, as there's this quality of gathering, of focusedness, of collectedness starts to deepen. And I think that's the most useful way to think of it. We sometimes think of concentration as the, the way to translate that word that um, could be called meditation, could be called. Um, Samadhi, in the, the language the Buddha's teachings are written down in, some of you will know, that that sense of, we associate with concentration, people talk, I'm trying to get concentrated, why aren't I very concentrated, I need to get more concentrated, and it's got a very forceful or sort of tight sort of feeling to it, and I sometimes think of like tomato concentrate, you know, squeeze all the moisture out of it and it sits there on the plate, doing nothing, but actually it's not that nice if you taste it needs to be diluted and you know mixed with other things. So there's just more a sense of gathering, collecting, noticing where we get dissipated, fractured, fragmented, confused, lost. We do. But the noticing of it, in that moment, we're no longer lost. We're no longer fragmented. We're no longer disconnected. In the noticing of it, we're here. And we know that we're here. And there, in this place, all things are possible. And amongst those things that are possible is really the deepening, the ripening, the maturing and the seasoning of understanding, of wisdom, of the, the natural and organic capacity we have to see what is true. To begin to penetrate through the confusion and the cloudiness and the, sort of the, the false perceptions or confused ideas about the nature of our life and our experience. And start to 
can actually be able to see in a way that penetrates. And so what we initially encounter, and there's a number of different elements to it that I'll just touch on this evening, we, we see this urge to try and find some kind of thing to make us happy, to try and get to some particular place or be some kind of person who when I get to that place or have that thing or become that person, then I'll be happy. And it's somewhere out there or over there or extended in time and space, not here. We have this belief and idea that what we're looking for is somewhere else. And so long as we're busy looking out there for it, or trying to get there, or become something different than we are, we can't really see, we can't really notice, we can't really meet and recognize what's already here, what it is that's actually the truth of the circumstance. And so... We're looking for other things, and and yet all the things that we're looking for are changing, are temporary. The things we might invest in, they don't stay the same. Whether it be jobs and houses, or relationships, or this body, it doesn't stay the same. Even if some person stays in relationship with us, they don't stay the same. They change. How annoying. And even then... You know, things in life aren't the way we want them to be. Sometimes they're somewhat like it, which is nice, but not always. And, you know, they're not in our control. We can't get even our mind. I mean, what feels closer to us than our mind and our feelings? Can we get that to do what we want it to? Can anyone here get their mind to do exactly what they want it to? And if you can, write a book, you'll make a lot of money. But just see, if that isn't going to do what I want to, how can I really expect that the world, full of all these other people, is going to do what I want it to? Or be the way I want it to be? I mean, just one person. Try and get one person to be the way you want them to be. You know, good luck. And yet somehow, we keep trying to do it. There's a... Lovely story of uh, Mullah Nasruddin, who's a, a Sufi teaching figure, and he's uh, both a wise man and a fool. And one day was discovered uh, sitting on the edge of the market in the village on market day with a large pile of chilies in front of him, eating them one at a time. And his eyes were streaming, his nose was running, his face was bright red. He was clearly very distressed, and he was eating these chilies. His friends came up and said, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? Nasruddin looks up and replied, he says, I'm eating these chilies. He picks up another one, eats it, and his whole body shudders with the obvious distress of the impact of that. And they say, Mullah, Mullah, we can see that you're eating the chilies. Why are you eating the chilies? Nazarin smiles, he says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. <laughs> At some point, we need to recognize that if the process of trying to get something or somewhere or become someone other than as we are, what we are was going to get us what we wanted, we would have done it by now. It would have got there. It would have happened. Because we've been working on it long enough. We're not actually going to get that much better at it, at doing that. Most of us have actually remarkably well developed and refined our skills in that process. 
And the fact that it's not successful is not because we're not good at it, but because it doesn't actually work that way. So this experience of wanting things to be a certain way and not wanting them to be another way, this we have to give some attention to. We have to look at this, to be aware of our reactivity, to see how the effect of it is to take us away into an image or an idea of how things will be when this difficult thing is gone or how things will be when this desirable thing is here. Whatever it might be, whether it's, you know, we're sitting in meditation thinking, I can't wait for the bell. It's, oh, you know, when's the sitting going to end? We must have been here for hours. Has he fallen asleep? You know, all that goes. And the bell rings. Oh, whew, great. Oh, walking meditation. Great. Walking, walking. How long have I been walking? What's the point of this walking? You know, meditation, sitting, great. When, when's the sitting going to be? Sitting, lunchtime, lunchtime, yoga, yoga, dinner time. It's like we're constantly jumping out of where we are, hoping the next thing's going to be better. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, but in the end, that process just goes on and on and on. And the effect of it is that we're not really fully in touch with where we are. When the suggestion is offered in the different forms that we're sharing and using it, just to be with where you are, to notice what's actually happening, be sensitive to the experience. That coming back into our experience is what allows us to reconnect, to be in touch with what's happening. And it's not an easy thing to do, but as we start to explore and realize that it's possible for us. It's not easy, but it's possible for us. We also notice that there's something peaceful about it. Just, ah, oh, it's like this, which might not be how I'd prefer it to be, but let's see what it's like anyway. Huh, maybe there's something in that for us. To be able to accommodate our experience, to realize that our capacity for this is much greater than we might have imagined. To see that as we start to accommodate our experience, quite naturally there's a sense of connection that starts to happen. We often imagine that when things are the way I want them to be, then I will connect. That the lack of that being so is the problem. But no, it's our belief that we can't connect with things as they are. That means we're not connecting. And when we start to realize that we can, simply by experiencing it. We don't have to like it, but we can experience it. Be conscious, be present. Oh, it starts to open up. And we start to feel something shift qualitatively. Experience might still be difficult. Knee might still hurt. Mind might still be busy. Whatever goes on may still be going on. But something starts to settle in the heart, in the mind, in the sort of the, the core of our, of our experience. And we see that transformation isn't so far away. So there's also a way in which we're asked to meet these experiences with a sense of kindness, to bring a sense of friendliness to bear on what's happening, including our struggle, including our resistance, our frustration, our difficulties. When I was first in... uh, 
in Asia and I, I, I travelled to India. I had uh, and I was very looking forward to to meeting my grandmother, who's Bengali, lives in Calcutta, and who I'd never met before and uh, knew nothing of that part of my heritage to be one quarter Bengali. And I, I came, found eventually her little um, place where she lived in the sort of little building, and uh, knocked on the door and. As she invited me in and we greeted each other, there was a sign right there, which is pretty much the first thing I saw, apart from this little Indian woman who was my grandmother. And the sign said, and I'll just say, I, I knew already of my grandmother that she had, uh, in the time of the uh, the Indian independence movement, she had been involved very much with the, the, the work of Gandhi and the, the non-violent resistance to the, essentially, the occupation by the the British Raj, that uh, imperial force, and, and that a number of young women had sat, and, and also others, but a lot of them, young women, sat in front of the army and the guns and said, we will not fight you, but nor will we move. And had ultimately, through the courage of that, found a, a victory in that ultimate unwillingness of the army to threaten them when they were so peaceful. And, and coming there, her, the sign, and I was kind of so this is an interesting woman, she, to do what she'd done as a young, as a young maiden. Um, and uh, she had the sign, and it said, in fact, if I remember it correctly, now I think the sign was on the door, so I was actually seeing it before I'd met her. Yeah, that's probably right. I don't think I would have been looking at it if I'd been meeting her at the same time. And it said, Hail, friend, kind of old English, Hail, friend, we ask not, no, hail guest, we ask not who thou art. If friend we greet thee, hand and heart. If stranger, such no longer be. If foe, our love will conquer thee. And something really touched me in just the reading of that, in the sense of, yeah, to meet one's, the things we enjoy and delight in with a sense of love, of kindness and care, of course those things unfamiliar or strange, to, to treat them not as a stranger, not to shun that which is unfamiliar to us and that which we feel threatened by, to see if we can bring some love to bear in that place. And so much transformation is possible if we can find that capacity in our hearts. And we're asked to in small and simple ways again and again when we encounter things that are difficult and painful or unfamiliar and scary. And in this, the willingness to connect, we see that that sense of being disconnected from when we resist or grasp is the deeper suffering. And it's released, it's liberated in our willingness to be open to and touched by our life, moment by moment, whatever it is that we're encountering. So there's a, a quote from Gandhi which perhaps goes with the story of my grandmother. And I think it's a really helpful way of relating to this process because we can't control what happens here, our heart and our mind. And Gandhi once said, you know, I have only three adversaries. The British authorities are a bigger adversary. With them I have 
a little influence. The Indian people themselves, they're also one of my great adversaries. I have not much influence over them at all. But you know my greatest adversary? Here's a man called Mohandas K. Gandhi, and over him I have no influence at all. So can we hold ourselves lightly here? Can we hold what's happening lightly here? And yet be very wholehearted in what we're engaged in. Because this offers each of us the potential for understanding, for discovering true peace and freedom in our lives. And so we have this opportunity to get to know what it is that this is that's happening already right now that has been happening all along that will continue to be so to really come to understand this and through this understanding this is really the the deepest foundation of happiness and well-being the foundation of wisdom that recognizes the truth of our life the beauty and the nobility of our life as it is and seeks to allow this life to be an expression of kindness, of care, of respect for ourselves, even in our struggles, and equally for others in their also challenges and limitations. So let's just sit quietly for a moment or two together. Just allowing yourself to be right where you are and as you are right now. And so may we all, through our practice and in our lives, come to live with a deepening sense of mindful presence and awareness, to live more fully and wholeheartedly right where we are, and to come to know for ourselves the true happiness of peace and freedom for our own well-being, and for the welfare of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.